often referred to as the Queen of Crime and the Queen of Mystery. Considered a master of suspense, and for good reason, the novel we're talking about today began with a simple nursery rhyme, but it would become one of the most sold novels in the history of literature. Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left alone. He went out and hanged himself, and then there were none. You're listening to House of Words, a podcast about writers, authors, and mysteries. I am your host, Jason Moore Hardin, and today we're taking the magnifying glass to Agatha Christie's 29th novel, And Then There Were None. first published in the United Kingdom on November 6, 1939, under its original and very controversial title, Ten Little Niggas. It would be published in January 1940 in the U.S. under the different title, the title it is now mostly known as, And Then There Were None. Having sold the unbelievable number of 100 million copies, there are numerous synopses. This is one of many. Ten strangers are lured to an isolated island mansion off the Devon coast by a mysterious U.N. Owen. At dinner, a recorded message accuses each of them in turn of having a guilty secret, and by the end of the night, one of the guests is dead. Stranded by a violent storm and haunted by the nursery rhyme counting down one by one, as one by one, they begin to die. Which among them is the killer, and will any of them survive? Quote, I like living. I have sometimes been wildly, despairingly, acutely miserable, racked with sorrow. But through it all, I still know quite certainly that just to be alive is a grand thing. End quote. Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller was born on September 15, 1890 into a wealthy upper-middle-class family in Torquay, Devon. She was the youngest of three children born to Frederick Alva Miller, a so-called gentleman of substance, and Clarissa Margaret Miller, 
As a consequence of Agatha's siblings being much older than she, her brother Louis being 10 years older and her sister Margaret being 11 years older, and there being very few children in their neighborhood, she spent quite a large amount of time alone. She would spend much of her time playing with pets, but would eventually create imaginary friends. This unwarranted solitude planted and cultivated much of the creativity that she would later dig into, structurize, and make a career out of. Eventually, she would make friends with other girls in Torquay, later telling that appearing in a youth production with her friends was one of the highlights of her existence. And despite the mostly lonely existence, Agatha would describe her childhood as being a very happy one. She had a large house with a large garden, as well as a very wise and patient nanny. She was also witness to her parents displaying affection to one another and considered their marriage a success. Her mother Clarissa got it in her mind that her daughter should not learn to read until the age of eight. Agatha's curiosity being too strong to restrain, she would teach herself to read by age four. Not wanting to encourage this curiosity, however, her mother insisted that Agatha receive home education in contrast to her sister who had been sent to boarding school. Home education allowed her parents and her sister to supervise Agatha's studies when it came to reading, writing, and basic arithmetic, which was her favorite. She was also quite artistic and would learn to play the piano as well as the mandolin. Being as clever and as creative as she was, she would let her imagination run wild. She would dream about things outside the realms of reality, something that was not seen as the sort of activity to encourage at that time. And with that wild imagination also came nightmares. One particular nightmare she was troubled with centered around someone she referred to as the gunman. It would begin as quite an ordinary dream, at a tea party or some similar setting where there would be a number of people. Then suddenly, a feeling of uneasiness would drape over her and then she would see him, sitting by the tea table or by the beach. This so-called gunman would immerse himself in the action taking place. His pale blue eyes would lock with hers and she would wake up shrieking. It would be her first leap into the darker side. Furthermore, she was fascinated by who this person was. Writing would be deeply ingrained in Agatha. She wrote her first poem in April of 1901, entitled The Cowslip. That same year, unfortunately, came some devastating news. Her father's health had deteriorated, and by November, he was dead from pneumonia and chronic kidney disease. She would later say that the death of her father when she was 11 years old marked the end of her childhood. His death also brought with it a greater strain of money than the family had experienced before, which could perhaps be a possible reason that money is the main motivator for wrongdoings in half of her novels. Shortly after her father's death, Agatha was living alone with her mother in Ashfield. In 1902, she began attending Miss Geyer's girls' school in Torquay, but found it difficult to adjust to the discipline. In 1905, aged 15 at the time, she was sent to Paris by her mother, 
where she would be educated in a series of schools that focused on voice training and piano playing. Upon discovering that she neither had the talent nor the temperament of an opera singer or a concert pianist, she gave up on that goal. After completing her education in Paris, she returned to England, only to find her mother's health in decline. The two of them decided to travel to Egypt, at the time a popular tourist destination for wealthy Britons. They would spend the winter of 1907 through 1908 in the warm climate, enjoying themselves. They visited a host of ancient Egyptian monuments, including the Great Pyramids of Giza. The fascination she would later exhibit, however, was not yet present at the time. While bedridden at the age of 18 due to a heavy bout of influenza, Agatha would pen her first short story, The House of Beauty. It was approximately 6,000 words on the subject of madness and dreams, a subject that greatly fascinated her. Around the same time, she would begin working on her first novel, Snow Upon the Desert, set in Cairo, Egypt. It tells of similar incidents as those she experienced while in Egypt. She wrote the book under the pseudonym Monosyllaba and sent it out to six publishers. Disappointment would strike, however, as all six publishers declined her book. Seeing her daughter's disappointment, her mother suggested that she talk to the family friend and neighbor, novelist Eden Philpotts. Philpotts took to Agatha and encouraged her to continue to write. She passed the novel Snow Upon the Desert to her own literary agent. He too, like the others before him, also rejected the novel, but did suggest that she write another one. Sometime later in October of 1912, Agatha would be introduced to the man from whom she would take the surname Christie. Archibald Christie was the son of a barrister in the Indian Civil Service, and he himself would become an army officer in the Royal Flying Corps. The two quickly fell in love and were engaged a mere three months after meeting. The outbreak of World War I separated them as Archibald was sent to France to fight in August of 1914. While on home leave on Christmas Eve of 1914, Archibald and Agatha got married, officially making her Agatha Christie, a name that would eventually become a household name throughout the world. She would also involve herself in the war, becoming a member of the Voluntary Aid Detachment of the Red Cross. Her service was divided into two stints between 1914 and 1918, when her war service came to an end. It was between her Red Cross volunteer terms in 1916 when she sat down to write her first detective novel. She had been by this time a longtime fan of the detective novels of Wilkie Collins and Arthur Conan Doyle, among others, and decided to dip her toes into the genre. That novel was The Mysterious Affair at Styles and featured Hercule Poirot. For us non-French linguists, we'll go with Hercule Poirot a former Belgian officer with magnificent mustaches and a head shaped like an egg. The inspiration for the character came from Belgian refugees living in Torquay, as well as the Belgian soldiers she helped treat as a volunteer nurse. Her original manuscript was rejected to begin with, 
but it would soon be accepted by the Bodley Head under the condition that the conclusion of the novel would be revealed in a different manner. Christie accepted the condition and signed a contract for five years with the Bodley Head. Archie was reassigned to London by 1918, and they rented an apartment in St. John's Wood. Agatha settled into married life. She gave birth to her only child, Rosalind, in August 1919. Fortunately for her readers, it did not stop her from continuing to write, and prolifically so. By the time she had published her third novel, Murder on the Lynx, in 1923, she had no difficulty selling her work, and so began the ascension to her legendary writing. Involved in a bit of mystery in her own personal life in late 1926, Agatha would make headlines surrounding her disappearance. A string of incidents perhaps led to this. In April of that year, her mother died, which sent her into a deep depression. A few months later, her husband asked for a divorce as he had fallen in love with someone else and wanted to pursue a future with this someone else. This, naturally, only worsened Agatha's mental state. On December 3rd, after a quarrel with Archibald, she disappeared from their home. The following morning, her car was found and inside was an expired driving license and clothes. The press ran with the sensational story and one newspaper even offered a 100-pound reward. More than a thousand police officers, 15,000 volunteers, and several airplanes searched the rural landscape in and around the area where the car was found. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle even went as far as reaching out to a medium in hopes of finding her. Despite the extensive manhunt, she would not be found until December 14th. She had checked into the Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Harrogate, Yorkshire under the name Tressa Neal, Neal being the surname of the woman Archibald was leaving her for. Two doctors diagnosed Christie as suffering from an unquestionable, genuine loss of memory. The divorce of Agatha and Archie was finalized in October of 1928. She retained custody of their nine-year-old daughter and would keep the Christie surname for her writing. Reflecting on this period, Christie wrote, So after illness came sorrow, despair, and heartbreak. There is no need to dwell on it. Quote, Plots come to me at such odd moments. When I am walking along the street or examining a hat shop, suddenly a splendid idea comes into my head. End quote. Being a voracious reader from an early age, Agatha Christie's earliest memories were of reading children's books by Mrs. Molesworth and Edith Nesbitt. When she was a little older, she moved on to the more surreal worlds of Edward Lear and Lewis Carroll. As an adolescent, she enjoyed works by Anthony Hope, Walter Scott, Charles Dickens, and Alexander Dumas, as well as the aforementioned detective novels of Collins and Doyle that she would soon dive into headfirst. If you recall, she said plots came to her suddenly. She was always on the lookout for, as she put it, a neat way of covering up the crime so that nobody would get it too soon. 
Christy would then go on long, solitary walks across Dartmoor to think over her plot ideas and saying her dialogue out loud. At other times, she stated she would be walking along the street when suddenly a splendid idea pops into your head. She would also study the newspapers, looking for details of what she called a clever bit of swindling. Agatha Christie was 49 years old when And Then There Were None was published. It was her 29th book and the one she declared to be the most difficult to write. One of the most outstanding elements of the plot is the children's rhyme and the minstrel song that dictates the murder methods in the novel. She was fond of having an exercise book easily available for writing down any idea of plot that should come to her. She would then organize her notebooks with labels in order to keep ideas separated. The downside of having as many as half a dozen different notebooks at the same time is that she would sometimes manage to lose track of where she had written down specific ideas. Concerning her incredible productivity, it could be attributed to the fact that she not only kept several notebooks which she jotted down ideas and plots into, but also that she wrote on no less than two books at the same time. When she had enough material in one of her notebooks, she would sit down to work on her favorite Remington Victor T portable typewriter, set up on a sturdy table. She would write in various places around the house before she set up an office for herself late in her career. On one occasion, she experimented with a different technique by dictating a story to her secretary, but soon found that she felt much better writing in longhand and then typing it out herself. Being one of the first authors to understand her commercial genre, Agatha would most often create a cast of characters before she would move on to find a setting for them. Then, an idea for a method of murder would arrive. She would then move on to who the murderer would be and come up with an interesting motive. Only then would she start plotting all the other suspects and what may have motivated them. At that stage in her process, it was fairly easy for her to devise the all-important clues and plant a few false trails along the way. She stated that she would often write her books all the way up to the last chapter at which point she would decide who would be the least probable murderer. She would then move backwards and make the necessary changes in order to make the evidence align so as to frame that individual. Then, at the end, in a Christie hallmark, the detective usually gathers the surviving suspects into one room, explains the course of deductive reasoning, and reveals the guilty party. But there are exceptions where it is left to the guilty party to explain how everything came together, such as in And Then There Were None. Agatha would find inspiration for characters in restaurants and social gatherings. If she found herself fascinated by certain mannerisms and phrases, she would jot them down and later create a character or characters around them. She had a strict rule about not using recognizable real people and would always make more up than what was there. She stated that she once attempted to use a real person in a book, someone she knew quite well, but the idea was not a success. As mentioned at the top of this episode, there was much controversy surrounding the original title of the novel. 
In the original UK release and all the way up until 1985, all the references that would later be Indians and soldiers was originally nigger. This included the name of the island and the ten figurines that represent each of the visitors. Because of the different connotations the particular slur had in the United States, the title of the U.S. edition published in 1940 would take the last five words of the rhyme, and then there were none, which is a central plot of the novel. Between 1964 and 1986, the pocketbook's paperbacks used the alternative title Ten Little Indians before all future novels would be renamed, and then there were none. Although her works of fiction at times contain objectionable characters, often stereotypes, in real life, Christie's view of people of all backgrounds and hues were positive. Having been to Syria and hoping to return someday, she, in her own words, described the nation as a gentle, fertile country and its simple people who know how to laugh and how to enjoy life, who are idle and gay, and who have dignity, good manners, and a great sense of humor, and to whom death is not terrible. There is little else to say other than that the book became an immense success. Though some, including writer Raymond Chandler and Julian Simons, did criticize the artificiality of Christie's work. The literary critic Edmund Wilson described her prose as banal and her characterizations as superficial. But these were the few and far between as the novel would end up as one of the best-selling novels of all time. Her next novel, Sad Cypress, would be another bestseller and Agatha Christie's fame would not diminish. In her prime, she was rarely out of the bestseller list. She was the first crime writer to have 100,000 copies of 10 of her titles published by Penguin on the same day in 1948. As of 2018, Guinness World Records listed Christie as the best-selling fiction writer of all time. By 2020, her novels had sold more than 2 billion copies in 44 different languages. Allow me to leave you with one final quote from the Queen of Mystery. One doesn't really recognize the important moments in one's life until it's too late. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. I, along with the creators of this podcast, kindly ask that you please consider helping make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Crystal M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden. 